Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Have you ever seen a war coming on the horizon and it felt like there was nothing you could do about it? I'm using that word war in a loose sense as a metaphor. It might be conflict between co-workers, relatives, spouses, friends, in-laws, neighbors, communities, people groups, even nations. But it's a situation where you can see the tension rising and the personality differences, the socio-economic differences, cultural, racial differences, little things stacking up. Everyone has their list of injustices and grievances, and you can see people taking sides, and you can see the pot shots or the underhanded moves, the posturing, the positioning, the divisions, the power plays. You see people who feel like they're not being heard, or they feel like they don't have a clear avenue for protest or dissent or an alternative path. And there's all this resentment building. And you see a war on the horizon of some kind. Sometimes you can look on from a distance. It's kind of like you're in the bleachers and you're watching a brutal boxing match. The blows aren't actually raining down on you. Sure, you might wince. You might grimace as you watch other people get hurt, as you watch other people's lives be affected or fall apart in various ways, but you're not the target. We could say in a moment like that, that you're in some kind of a privileged position, but that's not how it always goes down. There are other times when you see the war coming and then it's on top of you and you become one of the casualties of the war. You find yourself somehow caught in the middle of it and unable to escape it. What are you supposed to do about it? Well, this brings us to the letter of James. And there are a couple of ancient stories and some cultural history that go along with this. James saw a war on the horizon. So, James chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of feasting. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not resisting you. 
it's as if James saw the war coming and he likened what was happening to a fire. See, fires destroy themselves through consumption. Fires come to an end once they have consumed everything in their path. And James saw a similar end coming for the rich. They were consuming everything in their path. And James saw it ultimately ending in self-destruction. Like you, you're not only burning others, this is going to ultimately burn you. And you say, where, where are you getting all of that? I'll give you a quick snapshot of how the rich were consuming everything in their path. So in first century Palestine, the rich were the top one to two percent of the population, but they owned the majority of all the land. There was no middle class. The rich controlled the marketplace. They made it impossible for small farmers to survive because in the good years the rich farmers undersold the little guys so that the little guys didn't hardly make any money. Meanwhile the rich farmers weren't just selling all of their grain they were hoarding some grain so that in the bad years they could inflate the market and drive the prices up so that the little guys couldn't afford to even do business to the point that thousands and thousands of farmers lost their land. Additionally, the wealthy landowners offered poor struggling farmers loans so that they might keep their small farms afloat, uh, which seemed like a nice move, but it was actually a major tension because the small guys could never pay off their loans. It was only a stopgap measure that ended in one of two ways. Poor farmers stuck in this position actually ended up with one of two options. They, they could end up being sold into debt slavery, which meant that they could depend on some kind of food and shelter from their owner, but on the other hand, they were regarded with no personhood, no voice of their own, no legal rights, subject to a life of toil and potential abuses of every kind. Or they could sell the farm and end up as day laborers, which did not guarantee them food or shelter. It did not necessarily guarantee them steady pay of any kind. They were caught in a competitive work environment where landowners pushed the exploitation to the limit, uh, paid them the bare minimum that they could survive on because the landowners really just regarded them as little more than animals whose energy was needed to produce the wealth that the land generated. Either way, small farmers lost their land to the rich. They were exploited to the limit and it amounted to thousands of humans who were all working in fields they didn't own to fill the pockets of some rich person that they had never met who lived in a city somewhere. And they really didn't have an avenue to go on strike. Uh, it, the world was organized not just around work, but around slavery. And so 
if they went on strike, it wasn't like the landowners would say, oh, no, like we got to get them back. No, they had other alternatives. And so they were stuck in a world where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now, to add insult to injury, these exploited people couldn't even rely on their own religious laws to keep them from being exploited. Care for the poor and the foreigner and the orphan and the widow was at the heart of faithfulness to God. The trajectory and the intent of the Old Testament law was to keep anyone from accumulating vast wealth while other people just were stuck in a life of poverty and servitude and slavery. The Hebrew people were supposed to pay foreigners and citizens alike. They were supposed to never charge interest on loans. They were supposed to release debts every seven years and return the land to the original owner every 50 years. It was called the year of Jubilee. It was like a reset button on things. And so that all sounds good, but one of the leading rabbis of the day, Rabbi Hillel, had changed the rules to allow creditors to collect their debts even on Sabbath years. So that meant there really was no longer any forgiveness of debts. It, it meant any way you cut it, you're going to lose the farm. And so this is why James saw war on the horizon. Fires destroy themselves through consumption. Fires come to an end once they've consumed everything in their path. And James saw a similar end coming for the rich. More and more people were turning towards becoming brigands, like Robin Hood type movements. And so in the year 66 AD, the injustice all boiled over in the Jewish-Roman War, or the, the Jewish Revolt. And the very first thing that the revolutionaries did when they took control of Jerusalem was to burn all the contracts and the records of loans belonging to the creditors, getting rid of any and all records of debt. And the rich aristocracy ended up completely dismantled. They lost everything. So a discussion question here, just to kind of get into the, the scripture, get into the story a little bit. Imagine yourself in first century Palestine as a landless farmer, reduced to a slave or a day laborer. And name an emotion you might feel and an action you might consider if you found yourself in a situation like that. So if you're on your own, just pause and consider that. Or if you're listening with a friend, pause and discuss that for a moment. All right. In the midst of this looming war, here's what James wrote to 
poor followers of Jesus. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? Patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So back to where we started. We live in a world filled with injustices. It's not just James' world. Everywhere you turn, there are people and people groups with stories and histories of mistreatment, abuse, trauma, oppression. Some of it's systemic and historic. Some of it is personal and private. It touches the food we eat, the clothes we wear, relationships, finances, the land we live on, on and on and on. In many ways, we can count ourselves as privileged and not experiencing the worst injustices that history has to offer, but that doesn't mean that your life isn't hard, that it doesn't include struggle, pain, suffering, abuse, trauma. What are you supposed to do about it? It can be overwhelming. Are you supposed to bury your head in the sand, keep your head down, tell oppressed people to just wait it out, say, it'll get better? Are you supposed to stand up with a megaphone and denounce the injustice? Are you supposed to use violent means to overthrow oppressors? Where's your starting place? James was writing to farmers whose land had been taken from them. And now they were slaves, day laborers. Oppressed people have often had parts of their identity stripped away from them. They're like landless farmers. It's a dehumanizing experience of one sort or another. Their way of navigating the world and finding meaning and purpose had been taken from them. And so now they were trying to keep their spiritual bearings. When you're a landless farmer and you long to see God doing something, sometimes it doesn't look like God's doing anything because landless farmers often feel like they can't see God. Like what happens when you take hearing away from a musician or hands away from an artist or tools from a carpenter or a kitchen from a chef or books from a lifelong learner? A part of their identity, their way of navigating the world and finding meaning and purpose had been taken from them. And that's often the case for oppressed people. And James writes to them, he says, see how the farmer waits. 
there's a sense in which inviting slaves and day laborers to look at the world as though they are farmers is inviting them to become fully human again in the ways that the world has told them that they are less than human. Notice that James invites these landless farmers, these slaves and day laborers. He doesn't say, uh, you guys should be looking harder for God. That's not what he says. He invites them to connect with the part of who they are that has been stripped away or reduced or taken from them. He's recognizing you probably don't know how to see God or look for God in this hopeless situation, but farmers and gardeners know how to wait for the rains and wait for plants to emerge. Naturalists know how to look for elk moving through the forest. Surfers know how to look for waves. Teachers know how to read the classroom and wait for the light bulb to come on. Bakers know how to read the bread, read the prove. Dirt guys know how to imagine the blueprint on the landscape. Athletes know how to put in the work day in and day out and see what can come from it. So James is saying, remember what it felt like to look through those eyes, those old eyes, who you are as a farmer? He's, he's saying God's moving, God's doing something good in this messed up situation of suffering and injustice, and you don't have to reduce who you are or become someone else to see it. You're actually well situated to live with spiritual patience simply by being who you are and looking through your eyes. Patience and hope start with applying the lessons from your craft, from your joy, that thing that gives you purpose and meaning, even that thing that has been stripped away from you, taken from you. So how can these things, your joy, your, your craft, that thing that gives you purpose and meaning, how can they help you look for God and see God? James is saying, you're not going to see God if you're doing the blaming, judging, grumbling thing. But if you can look through the eyes God gave you, there's hope to be found. So a reflection question or a discussion question. What craft activity or experience of waiting and looking for results is baked into who you are, part of who you are. How does it feel to consider using that as a metaphor to help you understand your own spiritual experience? So if James was writing to you, so how would he say it to you? So take a moment and reflect on that. Looking at the world through the eyes of a slave 
or day laborer can be so hopeless. It, it feels like there's really nothing that can be done. And people who experience dehumanizing treatment sometimes just give up. Like, I don't know if it'll get any better. Nothing's ever going to change. But when they're invited to regain some of their humanity, when they're invited to once again look through the eyes of a farmer, not only do they see themselves and God, they see the glaring injustices and the dehumanizing processes, and they want to stand up against those injustices and that evil, and they become like prophets, declaring and naming injustices is a lonely business and it's a dangerous business. It can lose you friends. It can get you killed. James says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The ancient prophets of the Bible proclaimed care for the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, and it didn't earn them many popularity points in their day. It earned them rejection, persecution. Church history says that James the Just, who wrote this letter, was martyred by the high priest for his denunciations of the behavior of the rich. So it's not like James is just writing something pithy. He's, he's writing something and suggesting something that actually meant the end of his own life. But is it simply enough to get on your soapbox against whoever you think the oppressors of this world are? Well, James goes even farther. And this is where James brings Job in as his final example of perseverance in the face of suffering. So we have to pause and remember the ultimate lesson of the book of Job. So just a quick review. Job had three daughters. We don't know their names because women in the ancient Near East had no personhood. It was patriarchy. Daughters were property. They were objects, extensions of men. They couldn't testify in court. They had no say in their faith, no say in who they married. They could be sold into slavery at any time. If Job wanted to buy a new donkey, he could sell his daughters as slaves in a world where the lines between slaves and sex slaves was blurry at best. Daughters did not receive any inheritance, no property, no wealth. The patriarchal inheritance system of the day left orphans and widows with nothing. They, they were left scrapping together a life from the ash heaps, the garbage dumps, living outside the city, eating whatever they could find. Now, we learn later in the book that Job had always tried to care about justice. He had faithfully gone out to the garbage dump, the ash heap, uh, to places to charitably try to feed those less fortunate, the orphans, the widows. But he was looking in on their situation from the outside. He was not looking from their, at their situation from the inside out. But then everything changed. Job's first three daughters died in a windstorm. 
his health fell apart, his life turned upside down, and suddenly Job was the one living in the garbage dump. He was living on the ash heap. He saw suffering from the inside, not from the outside. And suffering looks different from the inside. And Job also eventually saw God. He, he spoke with God. He saw the injustices of the inheritance system, the boundary stones. In fact, he wrote all about these injustices in Job chapter 24. He says, there are those who move boundary stones. They pasture flocks that they have stolen. The boundary stones are like the marker of the inheritance system. So they drive away the orphan's donkey. They take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the path. They force all the poor of the land into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. Job saw the way that that slavery was affecting people and the way that the, the patriarchal inheritance system was affecting widows and orphans. And at the end of the book, Job has this long conversation with God about human suffering and evil, and he doesn't get all of his questions answered. But the book ends with all of Job's fortunes restored. And so, yeah, Job certainly joins the prophets throughout the book in denouncing the injustices of the world. He does that, but that's not all he does. Because the book tells us that Job lived for another 140 years. And it only tells us one thing about what Job did with the rest of his life. So this question, what did Job learn from this experience? How did this experience change him? Well, we're only told one thing. Job 42 the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. And Job had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in the land were there found women as well-known, useful, good, excellent, beautiful, as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. Job's first three daughters 
grew up in a world that identified them by the man in their life, and we have no idea what their names even were. But after seeing suffering from the inside and gaining a new view of God, Job aimed to change that in his life. Each and every daughter, his next three daughters, they were granted a full inheritance. Job made sure that the entire land knew their names and saw them as well-known and useful, good, excellent, beautiful property owners, creative daughters, women. Job didn't just complain about the broken inheritance system. The, the end of the book of Job is that Job joined God in changing that inheritance system, changing the world. He self-sacrificially modeled a different way of living and treating women. We're talking about thousands of dollars and hundreds of acres of life and livestock. But you say, well, that's still in his family. It's still kind of selfish. Well, it didn't only extend to his daughters. Notice the very beginning of the book of Job says it's listing out the camels, the goats, the sheep, everything he had. And it says, and he had many slaves. But the end of the book of Job, after Job has spent all that time on the ash heap and saying, I see these children that are getting taken for debt slavery. When God restores his fortunes, no slaves are mentioned. He has all of these animals, but no slaves. Job was living the Jesus prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So can you see why James might reference Job as his final example of perseverance? Perseverance isn't just making it through suffering. Remember from the very beginning of the book of James, we, we said perseverance is remaining behind with those who have fallen down, fallen between the cracks. It's being changed enough to do something different. So, yes, your voice matters. Raising your voice about injustice matters. And there's a difference between simply complaining about injustice and systems and laws. There's a difference between that and self-sacrificially using your life and your money and your resources to make a real difference in a real person's life who would otherwise be treated in a less than human way. Maybe you can't change everything for everyone. But the question is, where has God allowed you to have an inside view of suffering? And what would it look like to self-sacrificially make life different? For someone else inside that world of suffering to do what you can to model a different way to the world. God is full of compassion and mercy and we're invited to join God in being full of compassion and mercy.
Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.